0: Amen. Well, good morning, Anthem. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, Philippians 3, continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And uh, today we're coming to uh, essentially kind of transitioning to the last part of this book. Now, there's still two chapters left, uh, essentially half of the book. Uh, But in this letter, Paul at this point is transitioning to kind of the implications of everything that he's been saying thus far. So, so far he's told us in this book, if you've been tracking with us, about the, uh, the worth of Jesus. And he's talking about the worth of Jesus. Jesus gives you a life worth dying for, a freedom worth being imprisoned for. He's, he's that good. He's that glorious. And then he goes on to say that's possible because of the work that Jesus has done, the work that Jesus has done in his obedient life, his death on a cross, and then his resurrection, and now his reigning at the Father's right hand. So he's Lord of the, of the universe. And, and, and out of that, Paul is now going to say, because of those truths, Now there is not only a worth of Jesus and and the work of Jesus, but now we follow in the way of Jesus. And and he's going to spend the rest of this letter essentially unpacking what does it mean to follow in the way of Jesus, like to be a disciple, to follow Jesus, to know him, try to get as concrete as possible in what that looks like. And and so in this final section, he opens up by saying, finally, my brothers, this is just three, uh, chapter three, verse one, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul says, rejoice, Uh, you overflow with joy, that you have a joy that overflows uh, in your own life into the life of others. And and it's interesting because when Paul says that, again, if you've been following this series, you know that Paul's saying that from prison, right? Right? He's, he's saying it from prison where, and, and just to be clear, a first century prison, I believe you can go to Rome now and you can actually see this in Rome, where there's actually a hole in the ground and, and you can look down in it and it's, it's literally like just mud and it's cut around and there are kind of stones keeping it back and you would go down into that hole and that's where your prison would be. It's not even like kind of bars with like a window with like, you know, little pigeons. And he's like giving it little notes and it's flying it off to the churches. And it like kind of like, you know, lunchtime and whatnot and time in the rec center. And Paul's out there lifting weights in the yard, right? like It's not that kind of prison. Like Paul's in a hole in the ground and he's probably sitting by candlelight and he's sitting there writing this and he says, I'm rejoicing and you can rejoice no matter the circumstances of your life. You can have a joy that's like that, can't be taken away. This is why, and you can imagine when they received that, they're like, really, Paul? Is that really true? And this is why Paul then says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It's no trouble. That word trouble, you say, what does he mean by that? Well, the word trouble could also be translated, hesitate. What Paul is saying is, I'm not hesitating at all. I'm not equivocating at all when I say that. In other words, there's no like, contradiction inside of me when I say that, where I'm like, hey, you can rejoice at all times, and wherever you're at in life, whatever the circumstances are, you can have a joy. You can have joy, and that will overflow to others, and you can live a life of rejoicing. He says, I don't feel internal contradiction, even when I'm writing that from prison, even when I'm in chains, when I'm in a hole in the ground, and possibly no one even knows I'm here. I don't even know if I'll get my next meal. I don't know if I'll be beaten today. I don't know if psychologically somebody's going to come in and just break me down and torture me. I have no idea if they'll cut off my head tomorrow. No matter what, you can actually rejoice. And here's the thing. Paul is saying this is what Paul's going to go after today. And and what I want to do is just kind of illustrate this in, in modern times what this can look like. Some of you may have heard the name Eric Liddell. Eric Liddell, is, he's kind of famous for the movie Chariots of Fire, right? One of the greatest movies of the 20th century. And, and the movie recounts where Eric Liddell was a famous. He was a sprinter in the 1924 Olympics. He's well known for having in the qualifying round, they held it on a Sunday. And he said, listen, I'm a Christian. I can't run on a Sunday right? It's just a Sabbath thing and and I I can't do that. And so he became famous for this because he went on, even though he couldn't run the qualifying rounds, to run later and actually win the gold medal and set a world record. And in the midst of that, there, there was a lot of worldwide fame, and, and everyone would ask him about it, and he'd just be like, because I'm a Christian, right? And so he's kind of got this joy, and he's telling about his, his faith in Christ. And, and, and one of the things, when you watch that, and I don't know if you're kind of like me, I'm a little bit cynical, uh, when I'm watching that, I go, well, that's easy to say that, and to rejoice, and, and kind of talk about all you have as a Christian, and, and this great uh, reality that you have in Jesus, when you're standing up on a pedestal, having a gold medal put." around your your neck right like when you're when you're famous on the world stage when you're a world-class Olympic swimmer at the height of your field like sure you can say praise god praise you G- i want to follow him because listen you're on top of the world and my question is what about when you're not on top of the world and because i think there's something in us until we see does that really like fit into all areas of life or is it just when it's good do you still walk the walk? Do you still talk the talk? Well, here's the thing. Liddell's story, we often don't hear the end of it. Because what happens eventually is Liddell becomes a missionary to China. Uh, And then in the late 1930s, and specifically, he's given a post in a very rural village with a, uh, uh, essentially working with the most destitute and serving them. Well, if you know, 1939 was right at the outbreak of World War II. And he was in China, and what happened was, in his time there, uh, he ended up sending his wife and his children away to Canada to safety before they knew they were going to be placed in internment camps. And, And they were placed in internment camps, and he's placed in these Japanese internment camps where every day they were beaten. They were essentially on the edge of starvation, their bodies grew gaunt, they were weak, they were psychologically broken down and tortured, they had no freedoms, they did slave labor. And, and in the midst of this, he also was with a group, a, a group of essentially like a school that he was put there with that they were not Christians. So he's kind of like the odd guy out even in the midst of this. They don't even share his belief system. Yet he's in this internment camp. And in the midst of it, well, let me do it like this. Uh, Langdon Gilkey, who was to become actually a famous theologian, happened to be also in this internment camp. He had eyewitness. He had an eyewitness account of what happened with Liddell, and what he saw was Liddell uh, working constantly, loving on the people there. But what he saw first was he noticed that all of the other Christians in the camp and all of the other missionaries essentially started to act in terms of for self-preservation under the pressure, the oppressive pressure of the guards they became exploitive of others in the camps as a means of survival. The missionaries who came in with Liddell started to form cliques and looked out for only themselves. The Christians actually started to look in on themselves and actually hoard the food and hoard the resources and try to protect one another. And, And this person did that, so they get beaten and we don't get beaten. They started to do that. And he's saying, he's looking at it going, what is going on? Because then he looked over at Liddell, and he saw something different. Liddell didn't worry about just his own self. He said it was as if he was driven by something completely different. He spent tireless hours caring for elderly prisoners, washing their bodies. Imagine doing elderly, like nursing home care, in an internment camp. He would teach classes on the Bible and science went on teaching and exploring the mysteries of the universe. And he would also, I love this, he would organize games and competitions for all the kids and including dances. For all these children who were in this, he would organize games and dances and they they would just have this fun and he was always overflowing with this joy. And here's the thing too, he had become aware that he was slowly dying and he was, a brain tumor was developing in his head that he would eventually die of headaches that we can't imagine. If you talk to someone who has brain tumor, especially when it is not treated, it feels like having a hatchet in your skull. And in the midst of that suffering, see, he would die five months before that camp would be liberated. Giving his life until his last day, putting on dances, rejoicing, teaching classes, loving on those in that community. See, just like Paul, no matter the circumstances, being on a world stage, a gold medal, on a a pedestal, standing before the world, triumphant, and he says, I have joy in Christ, and then also being like Paul, down in the lowest depths of this world, dirty and beaten down and broken down and gaunt and at the end of yourself and in pain, and he says, I have joy in Jesus Christ, no matter what, it can't be taken away. It's the same. And I don't know about you, but that's, Like, I want to be that kind of person. I want to know that when things get tough, when realities come, that I'm going to be consistent like that, that I'm going to be loving and not just hoarding and and focus on self-preservation and just thinking about myself. So how do we become like that? Uh, Seeing Liddell brought Gilkey, Langdon Gilkey, to a conclusion. He said, there's a difference between a life driven by generic religion and one driven by grace. There's a difference between a life driven by just pure moralism, just, just kind of religion and, and in its traditional sense, and a life actually driven by grace. See, Liddell wasn't using his religion on the world stage to make himself look better. He actually had something better. What Paul will go on to say in our passage in verses 8 and 9, he said, I could lose all things if I, met. I would gain Christ and be found in him. I would lose all the gold medals, all of the pedestals. I would lose all of the comforts, all of the health. And I could be all taken away, and I still have the thing that at the core, I get out of bed for every single morning. Liddell, just like Paul, was a man whose life was driven by grace, and it allowed him to rejoice no matter what. I can't help but think of a line that you may have heard. It's actually probably more famous than Liddell himself. It's a line by Liddell. They asked him about his when he would run. What makes you run so fast? And he said, listen, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. When I run, I feel the pleasure of God. I don't run because I'm trying to prove myself, like some childhood group, like remember those bullies who in childhood, like I'm going to prove myself by getting being an Olympian, Right. I'm not going to prove something to my my parents. I'm not driven by some insecurity. I'm not driven by anything other than I'm running before a God who has filled me with his delight. And that drives everything in my life, including my greatest accomplishments. And that is what Paul, in this passage, wants for us and for the church at Philippi. He's saying, I want you to have a life that's so driven by grace, so driven by God's delight, that because of that, it leads to a life just of rejoicing. Because what Paul is going to say after he says, it's no trouble to me, he says, and it is safe for you. That word safe is actually a military term. And if you're, you're, again, with the series that Philippi was a Kind of a place where retired military personnel from Rome, they would retire there. And, and so it was filled with military uh, individuals, retired military individuals. And so military terminology is actually used a lot in in Philippians. And, and Paul's using it purposely because he wants them to think, like he's saying to them essentially this: what I'm about to say, what we are about to look at this morning, Paul is saying, needs to be. Taken to heart and in your life, like a safeguard, like something that when there's an aerial assault or there's arrows coming your way, that is just like a shield that you can get under and you can hide in a truth that you can grab a hold of and take with you at all times. If you don't have it, in fact, what will happen is your life will either be driven by what I'm about to tell you, or your life will be driven by something that will destroy you and those around you. And so Paul says, listen up. Take shelter in this truth or you'll be driven by something that will destroy you. And so today, the main point, we're going to be looking at how to live a life driven to rejoicing by delight, the delight of God. How to live a life driven to rejoicing. So a life that's driven to rejoicing by the the delight of God. So what we're going to do is first we're going to look at what is the hidden drive of humans? Like what is it in human beings that actually is driving us? Paul's going to do something really profound here. And then second, what we're going to look at is the unquenchable drive. What in us is actually unquenchable, yet it's driving our lives. And then lastly, the hidden source of rejoicing. How do we find a life of rejoicing? Let's jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this text. Lord, we thank you for the fact that this hits so precisely on realities in our day. And Lord, because your gospel is timeless, our human state is timeless. Lord, we just find different, sophisticated ways of papering over the reality of the fall. And so, Lord, would you come with power today? Give us insight, convict. Lord, comfort the afflicted, but afflict the comfortable. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. Spirit, do what only you can do. As we, we sang earlier, Lord, bring breakthrough through your word and by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul immediately launches into a command. So after verse 1, he launches it. He says, look out. Okay? It's a command. It's like, it's like he's yelling at him, right? Look out. Look out. So this is going to be a safeguard. First thing, look out. And he says it three times. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Why? Why? Because he says these, as he's going to show us, these are people who are driven by something unhealthy. Their lives are actually driven by something destructive. And unfortunately, (laughs) they're covering it up with religion. They're covering it up with morality. The pretense of religion. Verses 2 through 6 said, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What Paul is doing here is he's going to kind of compare it to how he lives. But while he compared describes how he lives, he's actually addressing what they do. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, what Paul is saying here is there's something that's driving their lives. And and he says these are two groups that we know historically he's probably addressing. The the first group is probably just the, the Jews. Uh, those who at that point were saying, you must hold to the Old Testament law, and in this Jesus thing, it's just a passing fad, it's not really a thing, it has nothing to do with the God of the, what we think of as the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament it has nothing to do with it. So you need to go back to the Old Testament aspects, the temple, uh, and, and fulfill the law of Moses and the, and the, the, temple, uh, the, the temple system and, and what's there. But then also, the second group are what's called Judaizers. Now, Judaizers were those who said, we believe in Jesus, but we also believe that in order to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, to really uh, have life in Jesus or what the whole thing is about is actually to still fulfill the law. So even though we believe in Jesus, we believe that Jesus would want you to go back and do something in order to actually have salvation, right? So, and here's the thing though, Paul Paul could spend all of his time railing on these people. He just rail on them again and again and, and unpack and say, this guy and that guy, and they think this, but this. But what he does, what's interesting, is he says, listen, there's tons of debate. Can you imagine all the debate they were probably having? Old Testament text, it says this. No, it should actually be interpreted this way. And oh, then we come to this conclusion. All blah, 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 right. Like the debate goes on and on. And Paul said, actually, let me just make a V line for the heart of the issue. Because what Paul says is there is something that is actually driving both of these groups something on an undercurrent in their lives they're using religion they're pointing to these things but in fact it actually goes deeper there's a root issue there's a root issue that no one's seeing the hidden drive and it comes out in verse 9 he says not having a righteousness of my own he refers to himself he says what drives me not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What's Paul getting to there? See, what Paul is saying is that what is actually driving them is actually a desire for righteousness. Now, you go, well, okay, what do you mean by that, pastor? what do you mean what Paul's saying there is a desire for righteousness? And I'm saying that's the hidden drive of all human beings. What do you mean by that? And I know it sounds kind of abstract one. And and so it just kind of like, okay, righteousness, right? Like, what does that mean? But then on the other hand, it sounds kind of like outdated, right? Like something out of like an Emily Dickinson, you know, novel or something, or Charlotte Bronte. Like some of you expect some guy with like one of those frilly tuxedos to walk up with his hair slicked back, right? And He walks up and he's like, oh, looks like quite a righteous bunch here today, right? Like, is Paul, like, is this just kind of a tie, like a modern like a, a passe thing that doesn't really have anything to do with today? Well, here's, here's a way to think about this and land it in our day, because we don't use a lot of times terms like righteousness. We need to hold on to what it means biblically, but often we insert this phrase, what makes you feel like you are enough? What gives you that sense of you are good, that you're somebody, that sense that you're fulfilled, that that, that you are actually, that you're good, that you're enough. What Paul is saying is that there's something that will drive your life that will make you have that sense of I'm someone to be respected, someone to be esteemed. And, and here's the thing what Paul's saying is that drive, that hunger that's in your heart as a human being, made into the image of a righteous God, of a holy God, of a good God, is a desire that you can't escape. It's a desire as a human being that will drive your life. And there is something in your heart that says, I want to be righteous. I need to be righteous because you were made. It's like a honing beacon that's calling out to the God of the universe saying, I need to be reconciled to you. But there's something separating us. And until it's like a magnet in your heart pulling you back saying, I need this satisfied. And here's what Paul is saying. There, the problem is that often that desire is to be Righteous. The problem is you seek it in doing righteous things. And you think that in doing things that you define as righteous. Because by what standard? Whose standard of good? Whose standard of righteousness? Who gets to decide? He says when you have broken infallible standards of righteousness and you think you can become righteous by doing righteous things, will never arrive. It's what Jesus said when he said, be careful not to wash the outside of the cup. What you do, the external things of life. Be careful that you don't wash the outside of the cup, but forget to wash the inside of the cup. What you are, your true state. And Paul says, even more, if you're driven." To be righteous, he's saying something that even just human history, as we'll see, just confirms is a universal truth because what Paul is saying is there's a God who is righteous. He's created the world. He stamped you with his image. And so here's the thing. What I'm saying is the Christian worldview, the Christian reality that you are made to be righteous and to be holy and you will desire that is an inescapable reality. And Paul says, if you try to do that the wrong way, not only will you never find it and be satisfied and that drive will drive you, but in fact, what will happen is you will be, your life will be destructive. In fact, the more righteous you try to act, the more harm you will do to yourself and others because your life will be driven by a desire that will never be satisfied. In fact, it will be unquenchable. Point number two. So the first one, the hidden desire, is the desire every, every human has to be righteous. But the unquenchable drive, Paul gives, de- de- in, in verse 2, he gives these groups descriptions. Descriptions that uh, don't really land for us in the modern world as much as they should. And he, Especially this first one, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. Now, in the first century, they would have around Philippi, Paul's actually taking words that they, this is a phrase in the Greek that was a famous statement that when you went around Philippi, you would actually have signs on houses by the moral leaders, the religious leaders that said this exact line, look out for the dogs. So you would have around the city, and Paul's been to Philippi before he started the church there, and he remembers all those religious leaders, all those people who were high and mighty, who had it morally together. They had signs on their houses, just like we put, you know, like Denver Broncos fan parking, right? Like you put things on your house or Bible verses or whatnot, uh, you know, and, and those are things to say something to the world about you and present yourself. And they chose this line, beware the dogs defining themselves by what they are not saying look at those people out there we're not like them don't be like them because they're not like us as upstanding as us as put together as us as successful as us however you want to define it they're not like us now dogs also don't think like don't think like cute little dogs you know, like the people, like the celebrities, with like the, the dog in the purse. Like, you're like that dog. And you're like, oh, they're like, they're cute. Okay, I get it, right? I just want to cuddle with them. No, dogs in the first century were like, a ro- think like hyenas. Like there's, there's a fine line between like hyena and wolf and dog in the ancient world, right? And so they were just literally roving packs of wild animals. And when they would roll into town, everyone goes and hides, right? They would come in and they would kill all of your livestock, They were lethal they were vicious they were nasty they were tribalistic they were a pack and they shredded people they tore apart whatever was in their way and here's the thing why does paul use this phrase because paul's saying you're claiming that the gentiles who aren't like you moral upstanding citizen you claim that they're like the dogs that their way of life tears apart reality. And here's what Paul does. He turns around and says, actually, you are the one who is like the dog. Now, why does Paul do that? Why does Paul turn around that way? Because he says, in your desire for righteousness, in your desire to prove yourself, you will rip people apart. You will push people down. You will disqualify people and shun them in ways that will shred society, shred families, shred all those people around you. You become like a dog when you have an unquenchable desire for righteousness and you will burn through everything in your way to satisfy it, including people. How does that play out? What does it look like? Get a clue starting in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. So we've got this real heartfelt reality, this internal reality. We are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, why does he say put no confidence in the flesh? Because what Paul's saying there is the way that you get your sense of righteousness is through yourself. It's through something you can do. It's through something you can achieve. And that's where you get that sense of righteousness. In other words, it's internal to you. But there's no real reality there. And so what he says, Paul says, is if you're motivated all throughout life by the need to prove, I am righteous, I am enough. And that's what drives your life and your actions. What will happen, he said, it will manifest in evil it in three primary areas. And I, I think this next little bit, I want to just encourage you to slow down and listen and, and pay attention here because I think these are things that we, throughout human history, these are realities, and this is profound that Paul is writing it in about 60 AD because he's putting his finger on the tragedy that is human history ever since then. And he says, if you try to find your righteousness in, in the things that you do, what will happen is you'll be driven by an unquenchable desire, and it will manifest in one, moral smugness, two, racial cultural superiority, and three, shaming activism. First one, verse four, moral smugness. In verse four, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, my righteousness comes from what I do. It comes from what I'm able to do in my flesh. And here's the thing. If you find your righteousness that way, it very quickly becomes, one, by your standard, I guess you get to define the standards of what's right? Right? But then also, not only that, but if you can do it, then it naturally flows that you start looking around everyone at everyone around you and you say, if you can't do it, but I can, then there's something wrong with you. And and what happens is you start to live with this kind of like disposition towards other people of like contempt, which means like I'm morally here, you're more here. And when you do that over time, by the way, it's the number one predictor of divorce, couples. When you begin to live in this place where you go, I'm morally here and you're here, you look down in contempt with disgust, saying, not only are you wrong, and not, but you are bad. And there's a fine line between that, when you are bad, when you say, in order to cleanse myself, in order to have a sense of righteousness in my life, you can't be a part of it. So watch out for those dogs as I define them. That's why the missionaries, they eventually, they said, all those people who aren't like us, How do you legitimate pushing people out and saying, we get the food? Because we are the ones who are morally superior and we are the ones who should survive. The trajectory of finding your righteousness and your moral superiority is deadly and it is ugly. But the second... Racial and cultural superiority. Verse 5, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, of Pharisee. Paul says you can also find your righteousness in your pedigree. Not profession of faith, but pedigree. Where you have a sense of racial or cultural superiority. Righteousness in my tribe. And so anyone outside of my race My cultural expression, they can't be righteous. Have you ever wondered what has driven, just look at the 20th century as a case study, some of the most educated, successful countries in human history to commit some of the most homicidal heinous acts mankind has ever seen? Maybe it's that sense of cultural superiority, racial superiority, not Aryan enough, not white enough, not black enough, not Asian enough, not American enough, not Chinese enough, not Russian enough. And what happens when we begin to define righteousness in those ways is it's a fine line between that and the moment when you must, as a group, cleanse the land of all the impurities The problem is you can't cleanse it enough and you keep cleansing and cleansing and cleansing to the point even the only way you who may fit the stereotype to be a part of the in-group, the only way you can prove your righteousness is to join in the purge. What Paul says is if you find your righteousness in that sense in any way that there is something about you and where you're born, how you're made up, then what will happen is you will eventually just Push people away and you will naturally kill reputations and shun. Lastly, shaming activism, verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says you can find your righteousness in zeal in a cause, in a movement. I do enough, I have a righteous cause, I do something, I change the world. And unless you commit your every breath to it as I define it, then I will shun you, I will silence you, and you have no place in my world. And the liberators actually become the oppressors. See, Paul says in human history testifies that when we are driven by a false sense of righteousness, we will burn every village, every reputation, every person to the ground until all that's left is ourselves with our false sense of self-righteousness. All the while telling ourselves that the impurity is outside us when in fact it is lodged deep within us. See, evil becomes justifiable when we attempt to justify ourselves by our evil. But seeking to be righteous, we become dogs on the hunt. So what Paul says when you go down that road. When you go down that road where you're constantly seeking and driven by this desire to be righteous, when you're trying to constantly prove it, what happens is you become like that pack of dogs where you just burn through the reality of your life, just tearing people down, tearing them apart, and going through just their bodies and what's left of them as you tear them apart, looking for that righteousness frantically, and you cannot find it there. What Paul says is there is a righteousness that has entered into this world. And he gives you joy. The God, the righteous God of this world, sent his good son into the world to die for your sins so that you might know righteousness in him. So you wouldn't have to find it anywhere in this world, but you could find it in him. And out of that, rejoice. Because what Paul says is if you go down that road and you're driven by those things, that unquenchable desire, what will happen is that you will just snuff out any rejoicing in your life or any other, every culture that goes down this road, the first thing to be silenced is laughter. Carefree laughter. The ability to laugh at yourself. The ab- just the ability to smile. And instead of laughter, what will happen is it will be replaced by the laughter of a pack of hyenas. Sadistic Laughter. Devoid of joy, full of contempt, poison. Paul says you are not made to be driven to find your righteousness in this world, but you are made to be driven by a righteousness that is outside of you. You need to become righteous, not try to achieve it. Only then will your life bring about life and rejoicing. Because only when Christ makes you righteous have you found the hidden source of rejoicing. Lastly, uh, both here and throughout Scripture, there's one consistent thing that keeps us, Scripture tells us, from discovering that that true source of righteousness. There's one consistent thing. Paul says here, he says, let me identify it for you. He says, starting in verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It wasn't, Paul says, all my successes or any of those things. It's only knowing Christ. That's what drives my life. And he says, uh, And be found in him, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not from things I can do, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, Paul is saying, You will either place your faith in the things that you run after and the things you will have to build, or you will place your faith in one who has come into the world who is righteous and good. Your every breath of your life will be built on trust in something. And he says, have you seen how God entered the world in Christ? Do you see how it's possible? John's gospel parallels this part of Paul. And he tells us, first, you must come to terms with what blinds you to it from seeing Jesus. And then lastly, what it looks like to find that delight quickly. In John's gospel, uh, it's really kind of two parts. The second half of John's gospel, the last, what, uh, nine, ten chapters, is, um, or eight chapters, essentially is the last three days of Jesus' life. It's actually a very narrow window, but it's most of the, the gospel. And in that second half, it begins with Jesus and the Lord's Supper, and it's this picture of intimacy with Jesus. What does it look like to have life with Christ, to have communion with Christ? And it's, it, he talks about the Holy Spirit and his disciples and their fellowship, even in the midst of their failures. What does it look like to have joy in Christ? Even in the midst of telling Peter, you will be crucified upside down, but you will be so driven by rejoicing in me and delight in me that you will just see it as complete gain, like Paul. Now, the question is, how do they get there? John's gospel is essentially saying, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, that's the picture of what it looks like, but how do you get there? The first half of John does something very interesting to set that up. It essentially presents a question by the end of the first chapters. The first half of John, seven times, that's, I was like, seven times? Sorry, can't count. I'm a pastor, I don't count. Uh, don't do math. Uh, seven times, Paul, or John, uh, he says this, he says that Jesus manifested his glory and they believe. So seven times what happens is Jesus does something and they see his glory. They see that he's the righteous one, that he's God in human flesh, that, and they bow down at that point when they see it, it says then that they believe and they worship and they rejoice. Seven times. In other words, if you see that he is glorious, he is righteous, and he is good, then your life will be just immediately, you'll see it, your eyes will be opened, you'll love him and you'll obey him with your life. And you'll rejoice but right before they go into chapter 13 and Jesus says this is what it looks like to have that reality John says but hold up there's one thing that will keep you from seeing his glory John 12 verse 42 many even of the authorities believed in him but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What keeps us from seeing the glory of Jesus, the righteousness, the goodness of Jesus, is seeing it only in ourselves. These individuals described by John are the same ones that essentially are the disciples of who John describes become the ones that Paul's addressing. They're almost the exact same groups. And John says if we want to see Jesus, we have to come to terms with what keeps us from seeing him. The things that are giving us that sense of glory, of righteousness, of being enough, of being able to do that in ourselves, that we must come to terms with those things because until we do, we won't be able to see his glory. In other words, we won't, if we try to find our righteousness in ourselves, we'll never see how good the righteousness of Jesus is and how much we need it. It won't work to stare longingly into the mirror to find your righteousness. As the old saying goes, it's just putting lipstick on a pig. Or I guess here, it's putting lipstick on a dog, right? It won't work to try to carve out an echo chamber of people who just validate your every thought and opinion. You may end up creating a group that again becomes, in your attempts to liberate the oppressed, you just become the oppressor. You can only find through righteousness and actually find a life with rejoicing and that, that joy overflowing to others by looking to the one who is the very righteousness of God coming to the world. How do we find a righteousness that secures us and overflows in rejoicing to others? We look to a God who, seeing our sin overflowed with his love and joy into the world. In his son, the joy set before him, he said, I scorn the cross coming into the world overflowing towards you to save you. And he says to us, stop. Stop trying to earn the righteousness only I can provide. Come to me and I will satisfy that longing. See, the does it look like to look to Jesus? These leaders that Paul is addressing would have known this better than anyone else. In the first century, when you would sacrifice for, you would have sin and you would go to the temple and the way you would deal with your sin and you would regain that sense of righteousness, of being enough, having done enough, of being forgiven, of being okay, is you would go to the temple and you would have an animal there and you would go to a priest and you would say, this is what I've done. They would pick the appropriate animal. They bring out the animal. And then as you would put your hand on the animal to identify your sin with now this animal, and you would slit its throat. And as you watch, as the blood drained from its body, you would look into its eyes, thinking on the sin, thinking on the reality of whatever has been driving your life has led to destruction and death. And what Jesus says when he says, come to me, look to me, is he says, I'm calling you to come and bring all those things that you are trying to achieve and cover up and prove yourself, bring them to me. I am on the cross as the true lamb of God. I am the final sacrifice. And when you come here, place those things at my feet and Put your faith on me and look into my eyes. And as the blood drains from my body and the life drains from me, see your sin having been forgiven. But Jesus doesn't just say, I take away your guilt because I'm a lamb. He says, I am also a man. And because I'm a man, I'm sympathetic and I understand that you live your life driven by this need for righteousness. And I came to live the perfect life so that not only would you be forgiven for your sins, but also you'd be given my righteousness. You need that spoken into your soul. And so Jesus said, this is why when he began his ministry, he, when he was baptized, he said, when you become one with me in baptism, when you do this, when this reality becomes yours by looking to me by faith, what happens is exactly what happens here. And he go down, goes down into the water, and he's raised from the waters. And as he does so, the father speaks thunders and said, this is my son who I am well pleased. And Jesus says, when you are one with me, that statement from the God of the heavens, the one who is truly righteous, truly holy, truly glorious, beyond measure, he looks down on you and says, I see Christ, and I am delighted in you. And what Paul is saying and what John is saying is take hold of that reality and let it drive your life. Don't go to any other source. Don't go to anything else to find that sense of righteousness that drives you. Because just as Liddell, his life was driven by that voice, that delight, no matter the circumstances of his life, no matter the reality, no matter whatever the race has for you right now or down the road, your life can be driven By that sense that when I run, what drives me is the pleasure of God. Rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are driven by so many things. Lord, that lead to destruction. Lord, make us a people who find in falling on our faces and saying, Lord, we are not worthy. There's so much unrighteousness in us. Lord, in the midst of that, would you draw, give us Christ, give us grace. At the, when we come to the end of ourselves, let's come to the beginning of you and just how high and how wide and how deep is the cross. Lord, if there's anyone here in this room who thinks that Jesus could not forgive what they've done. Lord, I ask that you would remove that pride and they would see that they have too little a picture of the cross, too little of a picture of you. Lord, call them to yourself. Lord, keep us, tether us to your delight, tether us to your Christ's righteousness and drive our lives, drive our lives so that we would be people of justice, we would be people of love, we would be people of service, we would be people of sacrifice. We'd be a people that even in the midst of death and in the midst of a fallen world and pain and suffering, we'd be a people who even can dance and we can sing. Not, Lord, because we're trying to forget, because we are a people who Remember. The reality that we have in Christ. In his righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.